Hello, everybody. We are back for another Prestige podcast, and we are not messing around. We're getting right to the point. It's 1996's Fargo. Is that prestigious enough for you? <laughs> Pedigreed directors. I'm, 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 I'm bringing some angry energy in this podcast for some yeah. reason. Uh, coming from the pedigree of directors, Joel and Ethan Cohen, the dynamic duo, brother combo, produced, wrote, and directed this movie. You also recall from their vast body of work, including Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, countless others. Yeah. Uh, features music by Carter Burwell. I don't usually necessarily always shout out the, the music, but this is iconic, and this guy is a long-term collaborator with the uh, the Coens. Uh, has worked with them since the Blood Simple days. Has scored Raising Arizona, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, Hail Caesar, and the most recent Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix. It stars Francis McDormand as uh, Marge Gunderson, the hero. She's also kind of a Cohen muse. You'll find her in Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, Mississippi Burning, and Almost Famous. Uh, William H. Macy, who you, we have actually talked about recently uh, in Searching for Bobby Fischer. He also headlined uh, Boogie Nights and Mystery Men. Uh, Steve Buscemi is from Famous Board, or Bald Move Famous from Boardwalk Empire. He's also done The Big Lebowski, Armageddon, etc. Peter Stormare. Uh, the Big Lebowski, Armageddon. Uh, he's plays Satan, the Devil, and Constantine, which I think is amazing. And finally, John Carroll Lynch uh, has been delighting me in recent years. Uh, his different turns in American Horror Story. He's a racist Polish man in Gran Torino, and he also is uh, uh one of the the kooks, the cuckoos in uh, Shutter Island. Or is he a detective? Oh yeah, I'm not sure. Oh yeah, he's in this, it's tough to tell on that one. It's true. Who are the sane people? Who are the madmen? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Fargo is based on a true story. Not really lies, but yeah. it, that that's the tone of this movie. Like it's you can't ever tell if it's bullshitting you. If things are funny, if things are horrific, sometimes they're all this that at the same time. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the movie Fargo? Uh, th- th- it was interesting. I sat down with my wife to watch this, and I think this is her first time seeing this movie. Wow. I know how you escaped this movie in the last 30 years is or 25 years is wild to me, but uh, she has. And she saw that uh, based this is based on a true story. And she was like, is this really based on true story? I'm like, no, no, this is just a tongue in cheek (laughs) way that the Coens tell their stories. And a Hollywood Hollywood production would lie to you. Would that would they, you know? Right. And she was like, I, Oh, I hate when when they do that. They lie about it being a, based on a true story. But that's that's kind of the thing here, right? You're in on the lie. You know this isn't based on a true story, but the Coens are doing something cheeky here, right? It's 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 all in good fun, and I I think that comes through in most of what the movie is doing. Like everybody realizes, none of these scenarios are real. None of this could ever really happen because it's a farce. But it's also one I, I guess to be taken seriously it's it's yeah i it's don't know how to explain it but it's it's yeah it's, it's signature cohen stuff and I, I see what alexis is talking about because a lot of times you know you see that movie and it's you see that it's like it's bullshit but they're claiming like you know right like it's like it's stuff like uh what was that about the uh, uh, alan turing the code breaking movie where it's like 90 percent of that movie is bullshit and it's like enigma it's based on a code? yeah the, the enigma code what was that the called? enigma yeah I can't remember um, enigma game anyway uh, I guess but like I, I do think that some of my favorite movies kind of follow this structure because like Fargo pretends to be a uh, a true story um Fred October purports to be a true story from the Cold War like sometimes that's kind of uh-huh. neat like. Uh, the Blair Witch, and I think it's different. So yeah. it's like w- whether they're playing with the cards face up, like the Coens and ever is like, you know, that, obviously this is not a real thing. And right, um, I, 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 yeah, but it, I think what it does is it it feels real. Like these, this movie has like artificially constructed instances. And we're going to talk about a few where I think they exist largely to provide that kind of like, this feels real. This doesn't feel like a story mm-hmm. that has a, 
you know, oh, I got this great idea and I'm driving from point A to point B. It meanders and yeah. it forks, it's messy and it and then, it has unnecessary digressions, information that's not mm-hmm. germane to the plot, scenes that don't matter. Um, I, I suppose, I suppose, but but it's also like it feels natural too. Like it, it feels more yeah. like these are real people. These are really stupid people, but they're real people doing real things, uh, making yeah. bad yeah. choices, making good choices that that go wrong because of circumstance. Um, yeah, th- there's a there's like a messy organization to a Cohen movie that makes it quintessentially Cohen in my book. But, but they also like aside from the actual literal trueness of it, they get, they nail an authenticity. Like everyone that talked about this contemporaneously. And I read several reviews or talked about how, like, especially people that grew up in these area, um, they just kind of nail the aesthetic. Uh, you know, this is where the Cohen brothers grew up in, you know, outside Minneapolis. Um, they cast a lot of people like the, uh, uh, the Lunder, uh, Mrs. Lundergaard is a Fargo native. Okay. Um, and they went to great lengths to like really nail this kind of Minnesota nice and it set truly horrific acts within that continuity. It's kind of interesting. It'd be like setting a slasher flick in Disney world. You've got this contrast between how like sometimes passive aggressively sometimes just you know general midwestern nice these people are versus like the brutal actions that they're 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 taking and like there's so many things that are coded as comedy like you know this this odd couple relationship that peter stormare and bushimi have um and you think it's going to be like funny and then it gets horrific and then it kind of goes into funny again and goes and the movie does that yeah but then I like I would be primed to hate this movie because like one of my biggest bugaboos are tonal shifts. This movie shifts tone so many different times, sometimes within mm-hmm. seconds of each other, and I fucking love it. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's doing both. Um I don't want to spoil too much, but there's the kind of the climax of this movie is both horrific and hilarious at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they even like yeah, there's like they they put like visual gags in into the 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 like you said the very macabre things that are happening on screen yeah um it does and feel very cohen like uh, th- this is this is what i think of when i think of cohen i think of this i think of big lebowski and and those are kind of the defining movies for me if you want to go a little more comedy you go big lebowski if you want to go a little more darkness and seriousness you go with this movie um but yeah that that's in a nutshell, everything they do. Yeah, there's a couple other things they do I thought were interesting. Like, there's a couple scenes where you have the B team uh, sheriffs like interviewing people, and they're always shot like a cops episode. Like, he's, yeah, yeah, this Minnesota state like a sheriff in like his big parka, and you just see him from the back, and he's interviewing like a neighbor. Oh yeah, these boys came up at the lake, and they are, and and, and it's kind of like shot like a cameraman just standing over the shoulder of the cop, like it's a real. There's a lot of things that they do that kind of, and there's nothing. I mean, there's a couple of like really beautiful shots of like the bleak northern mm-hmm. winter scapes, like like that make it feel like these these really lonely lunar scapes. But there's a lot of meat and potatoes camera work, you uh-huh. know, like nothing too flashy, uh, just average ass people doing average ass things. Um, yeah, there's there's and, and a not- kind of way that this movie sort of takes its time. Um, I don't think it gets like a huge flashy start to it. Um, it's just kind of like telling a story about about people, a guy who's, you know, in a little bit of trouble and is trying to get out of it. And he's got this harebrained scheme. And then it's just it does take its time, uh, even in the transitions, even in the filmmaking portions of it. It's taking its time, right? All these transitions of like you're in one shot. And then you slow fade to black, or you slow fade to the next shot. It's and not just the most mournful wor- music in the world, is right. you know, like like yeah, sad bagpipe music playing in the background. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's not that, but it's kind of like that. And there's not a lot of like laugh out loud funny stuff. It's more like situational uh, things and and things that like. When you look at them juxtaposed as to how a movie like this should run, then they're yeah. funny. Um, 
but yeah, I, I don't know. It's an offbeat, quirky kind of comedy that kind of sneaks up on you. And the cast is like full of just offbeat, quirky people. Like, yeah. uh, you know, someone describes T- Steve Buscemi's character in, in the in the uh, in the context of, of a person of interest, and they're like, yeah, he's just a strange fella. Yeah, like strange, strange how, and like the looks or the what, and then he's like, uh, yeah, just in kind of in general, and that's like Steve Buscemi, right? He's like <laughs> right. funny looking. I mean, I could define it. Acting. He's got bulgy he's... eyes. He's got some weird overbite, strange, fucked up teeth. Uh, there are traits yeah, of him, sure, that you them. could describe, but yes, he's generally weird looking. Uh huh. Uh-huh. He's he's distinct. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, the, the, I really, I, I, I grew up liking movies and like always of the action and genre kind of stuff. And I spent a lot of time with the Star Treks and Star Wars, the you know Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I started in, in high school. I had a friend that was kind of a cinemaphile and he got me watching like, you know, within the context of no rated R movies, like appreciating, you know, a better, like, you know, like, uh, better movies. Uh, and then when I got out, like this is one of the first movies cause I fell in love with Roger Ebert and like one of the first four star movies rated R. And I'm like, there's nothing stopping me from, I'm like in my own house. Like nobody, will, like nobody can tell yeah. me shit. I can just fucking watch this movie. And it's like one of the first ones where I had that experience of like a, a reviewer that I respected telling me like, hey, this is like an Oscar worthy movie before the Oscars and you can see it right now. And what a kind of like a cool experience that was like, hmm. you know, I, it's like that's that's the criticism thing. Like you kind of like something and you got a person's bird dog and shit for you. And uh, he, he, he found me a, a a prime duck. It was worthy of a Gunderson stamp <laughs> a three cent or a 29 cent <laughs> it, it might have been a 29 cent oh, man just this Fargo and I just remember like thinking like what am I it's such a weird it's such a weird blend of, of comedy and like laughter both like earned and inappropriate and just strange uncomfortable scenes of people that are like lying to other nice people and uh yeah and, that's and, uh, the and, distinctive thing right and this mix, like like William H Macy, is this mix yeah. of hubris and balls and utter cowardness that is infuriating to watch. <laughs> uh-huh. Like this man who's like doing million dollar deals over his wife's life, but can't stand up to his father in law to actually do the do do the easy part, which is like, damn it, you know, like sit down, I'm gonna go get this, and you're not gonna kill my wife, and like, but he's too big of a pussy, but also a big enough player to put himself in this situation uh-huh no no it's wild it's uh you, you said early on you know the the cohen's kind of grew up in this environment and it feels like it this is mm-hmm. like growing up kind of close to this in the midwest and in indiana um it, you get a little bit of this i feel like it's more severe the the more north you go and when you get into yeah. the minnesota wisconsin areas it's it's very yeah. much the nuclear white hot nucleus of minnesota nice but we're in the blast yeah, zone for sure for sure um so so i see all the things they're doing i see like the 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 true story that they claim this is right i i see the influences of the midwest in everything they're doing here uh and it just it it feels right it's a movie that just feels authentic even though its story is so clearly not Where do we? I guess we should uh, do the thing where we explain what this film's all about. Uh-huh. Uh, but first, let's take a quick break. Here's what's new and premium content for our club members. No lunch this week, as I'll be traveling on vacation. But get ready for next week when we have the rare, elusive—dare I say—premium lunch with Talitha and Aaron. And while you're waiting for the return of the king, don't forget May is the time to switch your Patreon tiers to make sure you maintain your full benefits by June. Stop by support.ballmove.com to check your Patreon levels to see the new benefits and decide which one is right for you. And finally, tickets are now on sale for Badass Fest 6. Come meet us live and in person, watch a mystery badass film with us, and then hear us record the podcast right there in front of you in a theater packed with Bald Move fans. Get your details and your tickets at baldmove.com slash live. If you want more Bald Move in your life, head over to support.baldmove.com right now to find out how you can get tons of bonus audio and video content plus ad-free feeds. (laughs) 
So if you don't know, Fargo is a movie about a man played by William H. Macy, who is uh, kind of living a disaffected life. He's a little bit of a Walter White type. Um, he's got a nice career, but everything has been provided by his rich father-in-law, and all he wants is to carve out something of his own so that he can have his 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 own thing. He's a bit of a he's a little got a little bit of Fredo from Godfather in there too. Uh, so he hatches this hair brain scheme to get seed money uh from his father-in-law by extorting a million dollars from him uh by hiring goons to kidnap his wife mm-hmm. um the thing is is he's an idiot and he's trying to lowball everything <laughs> and lie to everyone so he gets bottom basement talent to do the heist and it's just it is it it just goes places like there's so many organic fucking crazy twists and turns and like you know you feel like this is a lightweight stay almost like a joke heist until it gets like deadly serious and Uh it it goes places it's uh one that one i don't know one of the greatest uh movies coming out of american cinema of this generation like yeah if you haven't seen it holy if you're in alexis's boat uh sit down and watch it uh it's Uh it's a pretty good movie the other thing that's amazing about this movie it doesn't demand an incredible amount of your time like this is like an hour 30 and you're done. Yeah. And it, and this sounds like an insult, but it feels like a much longer movie. Like if you had asked me before I looked at the runtime, how long is the uh, fire? I'd be like, ah, probably two fifteen, two twenty. Because it does take its time, but it, does. it doesn't, I guess doesn't dawdle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the pacing is, but it's a simple story, right? I mean, it's not very, it's not overly complex or too, it's not like a, kidnappers a, and, a Nolan where you're going to, Oh, I need three watches. Like it's, no. it's pretty, you, you, you there. And I will say this is probably the sixth time I watch it. And this is one of those movies. It's deep and textured enough that I always get something new. Uh, like, you know, like uh, after watching this movie every couple of years, like I started really wondering about that one scene where she meets the guy at the, uh, the Mike, Mike, the Mike yeah. uh, Yana, Yana Gita scene. Like, what the, the hell is going to find? So I finally started, like, you know, what trying to develop my own theories and looking at what other people said. But it's it's one of those things where you'll you'll get so many different things. Like the thing that really tickled me is like how they the sex workers are portrayed. Like just <laughs> okay. how, yeah, like like the there's just two funny scenes with them. One where Marge is interviewing them mm-hmm. as persons of interest, and the other where Steve Buscemi tries to take one of them out and impress them at the VIP club of this like dinner theater joint in Brainyard, Minnesota or some shit like uh-huh. the celebrity yeah, the room and, or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. The celebrity room of the beef, like the beef and boards in Indianapolis. Like that's yeah. Like it's, you're spending a lot of money, but it's also not impressing anyone, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's really entertaining and there's a lot of stuff to get out of it is what I'm saying. Uh, okay. Let's, let's, let's discuss where do we want to open things? I kind of want to talk about uh, Jerry Lundercard because you framed him. I want to start there too. As a guy who. I, I, I don't know exactly how you, how you want to frame him. I have an opinion of Jerry Lundergaard. He's a guy who before this movie has already gotten in too deep. He's already over his head. He's he's done things that have put him in a position that he has to make this move. Of having yes. his wife kidnapped or, or trying this this parking lot real estate deal. He he has no other options. He's already in too deep. Um I I think you framed him as more of a guy who's like wanting something out of life that he's not getting. To me, it's it's not quite that. It's he's not necessarily like wanting something more out of life. He's already in trouble. At the beginning of this movie. Huh. Well, why? Okay, so like, what in your head canon is Jerry's story before? Are you thinking he's like gambling well, he's, debts? Oh, I don't know, like, necessarily how he's lost money. To me, he's always just been like progressively losing money. He's he's not very successful as a car dealer, and he's done. I, I, the thing that's clear is before this movie has happened, he's already taken out a loan for cars that he doesn't actually purchase to cover. Yeah other purchases to cover other debts that he owes. Yeah. 
in my head canon i thought that what he had done is he needed earnest money for this parking lot deal and that explains like the 350 grand that he floated from G- the gmac company um okay. and then but he needed that was just to like hold the deal open and okay. then he needed his father-in-law's other to get because like wasn't the total deal like 750 grand yeah for the parking but he lot asks for a million so like yeah. you're right but is that just his naked greed and over ambition oh or... it could be yeah yeah i i couldn't because like that's like you, you're right there is because that's what i always thought too that he had gotten in over his head and some kind of business deals and stuff when i was watching this movie i'm like well shit he he wants he's looking for 750 grand from his his father-in-law that's a big chunk of change uh oh, so yeah. like that goes back to like he just wants his own thing and He's trying to do it under his own steam, but he just couldn't quite do it. And he is, yeah, yeah. No, but it I, sounds I'm like clear. honestly, um, he's remarkably close to getting what he wants under his own steam. Like if he just has a backbone mm-hmm. and stands up to his father-in-law, and's like, no, if you, you're not going to help me out with this deal, or, fi- or maybe he's also being a little too stupid. Like instead of taking he the is. finder's fee, yeah, which would probably be in the what eighty. 100 grand range yeah, he for said 75 like grand 10 percent on the finder's fee of a 750 and then deal. take that and then take that nut and start yeah. some fargo based real estate or minnesota based real estate but like he wants like there's a scene where like his ambition exceeds his his reach and that's where he's in the meeting yeah. and his father-in-law's impressed which is something he never thought but then they're like Stan wait Grossman degrees yeah <laughs> yeah and then he's like well so wait a sec what are you saying what are you saying? Because it's ridiculous. Like, who goes and says, hey, I want to borrow $750,000 and I'll give you one point over prime as your reward. Right. Like, and he's talking about like, oh, we're not a bank, which, yeah, that's what a bank would do. Sure. Yeah. They're in but the business a bank of lending money for because, interest. Yeah. Because you don't got that kind of horsepower. You're coming to me, but you want me to put up all the money and take mm-hmm. all the risk and you take all the reward. It's, 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 it's literally ridiculous. But like, that's what Jerry is the deal he wants so it's like maybe he's an idiot too like there's there's a lot of yeah interesting depth to him uh there is i i think like he's clearly competent too right because he found this deal he priced it all out the numbers check out stan grossman vouches for the numbers so like yes he's not a dumb man when it comes to the numbers but he is kind of dumb when it comes to everything else yeah, and, and there's also like a suggestion that he's like very comfortable telling lies to people because like, you know, yeah. when he's he's did that great scene where the guys talk about the uh, the 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 fucking undercoat and you've <laughs> lied to me and you've done this and like you know he looks like he's miserable and he's like oh yeah you know you're let me go talk to my boss and he goes to talk to his boss and and then you realize this is all just bullshit he doesn't give a fuck because yeah. he knows he's gonna go back there and fuck that guy to the tune of a thousand dollars and he's gonna sit and take it uh. And I think that's kind of like court it. Yeah. He thinks he can just keep doing that until he can't. And he is a man he, at the end of his rope for sure. And there's that great, like there's that great unreality he plays where this happens a couple times in the movie where that was the first, the, the one we just talked was the first time. But then when he comes home and he sees the, his wife has been taken. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a little bit more violent than you thought. And you think he's like got this like, you know, like he's like, oh, God, this is too real. And and you hear him like, you know, crying and like things like he's phoning it in. But then you realize <laughs> he's just practicing the phone call to his dad. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this motherfucker got me again. And then I think that he eventually gets a genuine where when his dad goes to pick up the money. And he sees, he rolls through and he sees his dad dead there. And the car is like, you know, and then he sees the person shot in the, the ticket booth. And then he goes home and his son's like, is there, and he's like, yep, I'm just going to go to bed. Like, I think that's where he realizes he's fucked up and he's at the yeah. end, like you said, the end of his rope and he's got no place to go. But mm-hmm. this, this Macy guy is just really good at playing this exterior person that doesn't have a lot of like texture to him but like you can definitely tell he's like roiling emotions right oh yeah no he's he's a just a ball of emotions uh and i think it comes through in that yeah that that scene with marge where she goes and interviews him and he's just got this like plastered on salesman smile but you can see it around the edges like it's 
it's not it doesn't fully cover everything that's going on you know something yeah. more is happening yeah but she doesn't play it like that it's 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 weird i i can't tell like how good marge is at her job because of the performance that macy's giving here that tells mm-hmm. me something is up but, but i already know something is up right i've already been privy to the the kidnapping and the, the ransom yeah. situation so I don't know how much of it is I'm supposed to read this from the performance and Marge should be getting this too versus I'm just, I have more information she doesn't. It's interesting because I think Marge is a really good detective. It's yes. just hard to take her serious because of her accent and her general effect, you know? But she's just so like, I mean, she's, every time they tell us, like they tell us multiple times how competent she is. Uh-huh. Like, um, from you know especially when you look at the idiots in her department that uh you know think dealer plates are oh, <laughs> must have rushed off yeah. before it got his deal they're looking for a thing that's deal. like come on man but like she also has some genuine insight um and oh, that first she's scene also where where she yeah rolls up to the the triple homicide and she knows exactly what's happened and we've seen what's happened so we know she's right and it's not like they get this all the time like they make it clear that no. this is not a police department that deals in this kind of bodies and stuff. So it's like, you know, a lot of times they'll play these small town as as like, you know, completely out of their element, but you can tell right away, like, no, she's she, you know, she fucking paid attention to in, in criminal college and she knows what she's about. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a crack shot. Like that shot, right. she she, she lands on Peter Stormare. Like that distance, him running away with like a short barreled revolver in mm-hmm. those conditions and the threat, like, that's a fucking good shot. Yeah. Uh, so she's like, like, uh, an an all star police officer, but like, you never really take her serious until the last bit because she finally gets a gravitas in that last scene where she's saying, you know, like, what is this? Well, how many people dead and all this stuff because of money, and now you're going away for the rest of your life, and it's such a beautiful like. I feel like that's the first time you kind of take her seriously, um, because she does. She's she's finally the sage character that that you you thought she is the whole movie she's like being able to play it mm-hmm. yeah i love her and norm's relationship um it's, it's just wholesome right like this is the midwest part of like the lifestyle that doesn't that doesn't seek out fame fortune glory those kinds of things it's just happy being what it is and i think that's kind of the best of of the midwest life it's like we we have yeah. everything we need right here and that's that's it i mean what what else yeah. what else can you ask for being content in a simple a simple life yeah you know uh versus like leaving the small town and going into minnesota and trying to make or in the minneapolis trying to make it in the big city like just being content uh there's definitely a, a some some statements about that and like i i felt like this movie i i put a note that this movie has like almost every spectrum of human emotion got rage it's got jealousy it's got greed it's got shame it's got uh love and like i feel like the marge and her husband like it's that that self like they they uh, they talk a lot in the back in our old uh, religion about agape love sure you know like like love that's like almost like the love that god has for humanity uh like like this like self-sacrificing love and like that's what i feel like when i talk think about norm you know like the guy who his wife gets up in the middle of the night and she's pregnant. Like, well, damn it. I'm getting up too, because you need a good breakfast to be out there. And he's supportive, but not like up in any, any worries about her, but not like, you know, obsessively. And they cuddle at night. Like it's, it's a really, really sweet. Like you said, wholesome relationship. Yeah. And he's on the, the, the three cent stamp, not the 29, but I mean, he still yeah. wins, right? Like he's, he's, he's still got a thing. And, and I like that too, that she comes through this, like these horrific homicides and she sees like this fucking crazy, this guy shoving human body parts <laughs> into a wood chipper. Yeah. Which I, def- my God. Uh, but she comes home. She's not like Russ Cole from true detective where, you know, she's like scarred and burnt. And she's like right back into like, I'm excited to get, you know, like, Hey, you got the three cent stamp and that's cool. And I can't mm-hmm. wait for the- like, she's not, she's also not haunted by it because she knows that this shit doesn't say anything about, her and, and and hers i yeah there's something really grounded and real to to marge gunderson in this movie yeah she she's my favorite character in the movie um maybe next to 
Steve Buscemi. I, I like Buscemi's character a lot in this movie. He he's a competent person, but he's surrounded by idiots. Um, and he's also got his own foibles. He does. He does. He can't I mean, shut up. He can't, yeah. You know, he needs action. He can't sit. He can't sit and be quiet in his own thoughts. Like he's got to right. go out and, you know, like can't lay low. And he's a he's a criminal, right? He's doing he's a criminal bad deeds. He's he's kidnapping people for hire. Um, Associates with other criminals. Uh, but it, it seems like he's judge other too. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But that's the that's like the, the honestly, because I always think it's like, what is the linchpin? Like, what makes this thing fall apart? And Peter Stormare, it's Peter Stormare. It is. Yeah. I mean, he's it's the a- guy who gets them into trouble in the. Cop scene. I, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but that's the thing. It's like, so I've always thought it was Peter Stormare. He's the wild card, right? He's the one yes. that like, you know, has to solve things with maximum violence mm-hmm. and gets, you know, this, like they might have gotten away. But. I think Steve Buscemi bribing that cop is an unforced error. It is. You're like, right. You got a new car. Lundergaard did the paperwork on it. You probably got the title in there. Like people forget. It just, just happened a couple of people forget this shit all the time. Like most cops are not going to make it a federal case that you didn't put your dealer tags on right or whatever. But he fucking tries to bribe him $50, by the way, which is like, <laughs> I don't know how much I would consider bribing a cop if I was in a position to bribe a cop. But I think the opening bid would have to have another zero in front of it to even be <laughs> taken serious by a corrupt well, cop, well, right? L- let's remember this is 1987. So this is 1987. This is almost 30, fuck. 25 years the, ago. Yeah, 30, like 35 in, years ago. Yeah, yeah. But still, 50 bucks to bribe a state trooper seems on the ridiculous side. And and the, the him saying, like, yeah. I'll handle it. If he'd have just been cool and just like, hey, like, oh, I'm sorry, officer, I fucked up. I'll definitely get that taken care of. They're they're home and there's no problems. So I think that even though the storm air does everything to make it worse, if Steve Buscemi is less of an idiot in that one instance, they probably get out. And this is. This is not a movie. This is a this is not an interesting script. It's just, you know, but I don't yeah. know, because. It's it's one hundred and twenty one dollars today. Do you think a cop would take one hundred and twenty one bucks for a bribe today and, and seventy four no. cents? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, I don't think so. I Yeah, I don't know. That's barely I, I, the cost of a ticket. If you're going slow, if you're just barely over the limit. I just seen the cash, the cash envelopes that gangsters pass out in movies and TV shows when wow. they bought off cops, and it's a hell of a lot more than one hundred and fifty three dollars or whatever. You know, like that's oh sure, you know, and and, and usually they're ongoing. It's like hey, here's a thousand bucks, and you're going to get it every week as long as you know, and, right? And uh, and and we'll yeah, it's like yeah, like the, the fucking bribing a guy to the side of the road is crazy. So I meant to bring this up d- during our conversation earlier when we were talking about the seven hundred fifty thousand that. William H. Macy wants for this parking lot deal, but that's one point eight two six million. That's almost two million dollars oh. in today's money. So that's a pr- it's pretty serious big cash. Deal. Yeah, it's 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 serious cash for sure. Yeah. Um, and that scene where he comes in and like uh, I love how it's filmed because it's it's uh, his dad, his father in law and his business associate. And there's no place for him to sit. Right. He and he looks like, and it's like, oh, the chair. closest chair is the facing away. Arm. The chair that faces him is like across the room. And. And he's just like, kind of like, he literally has no seat at this table. Yeah. And how they, the, the, the Coens are, are obviously geniuses doing this stuff, but like the multi-level storytelling that like, you know, Jerry's played like he's uncomfortable in his own kind of skin. And now it's like that scene in, uh, uh, you know, Men in Black where Will Smith is trying to figure out how to write <laughs> on that egg, in an egg-shaped chair. It's like, there's no way to do this and look oh, cool and comfortable. Right. And uh, I, I just I just love the visual storytelling there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Uh, what about the other characters? So we talked about William H. Macy. We talked about Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi. Uh, Peter Stormare, you want to talk about him a little bit? He's, like you said, He's the wild terrifying card. terrifying because, yeah. like, you know, up until... He grabs that cop's hand and blows his brains out on the Steve Buscemi. That's filmed kind of like a dumber and dumber scene. You know, like this, 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 hmm. this, this movie could have easily gone to the cop drinking a beer, a beer bottle full of piss. Okay. You know, like it's structured uh-huh. the exact same way. 
but in Fargo universe, it ends up with a, a gallon of blood splashing into the the brand new car, and he is. I, I don't know this guy. This is like the least. He's still undeniably goofy, right? Mm-hmm. But this is one of the least goofy roles I've ever seen him in. Um, and I think it's he's just as goofy. He's just really scary somehow. He is. It's it's part that he doesn't talk very much. I think the more Peter Stormare opens his mouth with his crazy accent, that's halfway between Swedish and Russian and American somehow. Uh, uh-huh. He looks goofier. And so yeah. not saying much helps him here, but yeah, he's pretty scary. Yeah. Um, I, uh, and, and, and he's like got blonde hair, which is weird. And again, like, this is a very odd couple relationship. It's just people are dying in it. Um, yeah. But I, I do, I do like everything he's doing in, the, in this. And you wonder, it's also like, cause I think the deal is he's just a psychopath. And I wonder like, how in the world did Steve Buscemi in they never go into how, like, uh, uh, how they know each other. They kind of explain like how proud Shep or Shep proud. Uh, what's his proud name? Foot. Proud? Is it Proudfoot? Okay. I was mm-hmm. like, that's, from the Hobbit, there's no way that's right. Uh, but Shep, Shep Proudfoot and him, they they explain it. But like, how did he come up with this psychopath? Yeah, and I feel like it's he's just one of those guys who's just a motor mouth, and it's like, oh yeah, you need your wife kidnapped? Ah, I can do that, no problem. And it's like the first guy he thinks of that's like tough and flinty. He goes and yeah, dead eyed psychopath. <laughs> do you want to talk about the mic? Yanagita scene? I do. I do. So, this is a scene where Marge is in going to be in Minneapolis uh, doing some police business. And uh, somehow she gets connected to this guy who was a class older than her in high school. And I think you, I think you get the idea that maybe there's a mutual uh, torch held up or maybe maybe I should let you do because you got the one the problem with it what's well, your he, understanding of the scene uh, so so he certainly has a torch for her uh did in high school when they were when, when they went to school together and he sees her on tv because of this triple homicide and she's being interviewed right. about it and he's like oh I should contact her and so he does mm-hmm. and then and he calls her up like where actually not even that early in the morning uh they they apparently sleep in pretty late uh they're like me mm-hmm. uh and then she happens to be in Minneapolis and she decides now oh, I'm just going to connect with him and things get weird in that scene. And you find out he's a liar and all the, all these other things. But I just don't really know what the purpose of this scene is because it stands in isolation from everything else. As best I can tell, at, at least from a plot perspective, she, she goes to Minneapolis because of the investigation, but then she just decides to connect with this guy. They have one scene in a Radisson bar restaurant place. And then he's gone. And there's, there's a conversation later with somebody on the phone about Mike, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't influence anything in the plot. Uh, it's just kind of there. And I don't know what the purpose of this scene is. So there's two defenses of the scene. As far as I can tell, I don't think the Coen brothers have ever commented on it directly, but it's one of those things that like, it's obviously one of these, you know, it's one of those like Sesame Street things. Like one of these things doesn't belong here. One mm-hmm. of these things is not the same. This is a clearly like a vestigial part. Like it feels like uh, there's yeah. a director's cut where Mike was a much bigger character and he's been excised and they had this one scene that that's kind of like a whisker that they missed shaving off. Yeah. So there's been a couple defenses of it. Number one is like what I alluded to in our preview kind of discussion where this is based on a real story. Real stories are messy. Real stories have digressions that don't necessarily go anywhere. And the main characters aren't always on task 100% of the time. Mm. So this is just essentially an mm. uh, interlude that would have happened in the real Marge Gunderson's. You know, so, so it gives that kind of verisimilitude kind of feeling. I, I don't um, like that. As someone don't like who that, prefers more structure and more, uh, I guess, less reality in my fiction. Narrative economy. Yeah. Yeah. I like everything to connect. I think there's, I, I think I'm a little more sympathetic because like, I, I do like, like to give artists room to experiment with like negative space, you know, cause sometimes that can like 
make a certain feeling like maybe the impatience of a viewer the kind of strangeness mer- is supposed to put you in the the marge's uh mindset too well i, I, I like that think- as part of a character journey i don't really like that here because it doesn't seem to influence marge at all she doesn't it's not part of her arc dude. no it's not yeah it's not so the th- second thing is is it, it tells us something about marge now it still i don't think is anything vital but like uh, a lot of people pointed out that like number one she didn't tell her husband about this meeting okay number two it's implied that they might have been mutual sweethearts in high school because like at every time she does an interview with somebody she's kind of rolls in here she like checks her makeup she checks her hair and makeup and like make sure she looks presentable and kind of goes in with a little bit of a nervous energy i'm not saying that she went there to fuck mike i'm (laughs) saying it's kind of more of like this is a little outside her comfort envelope and she's kind of curious about what Mike is up to. And I don't think she's going to leave Norm or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, kind of curious about the uh, road, less traveled and maybe her husband will worry about it. And so like, it's a little bit of something saying something about her character. Do you think that's valuable? Does I mean, it, I guess does it I, make you feel like you understand her better. Does it give her more texture and color? It almost seems like the opposite of everything else I see from her. I, I see her in a content life. I see her very self-assured. I see her as uh, being responsible and resilient and, and on top of shit. And then there's, and then there's that there's the mic scene, which I, it doesn't undermine any of that stuff because she ultimately like makes all the right calls here. I think, um, you know, rebuffs whatever advances he's putting down here. And, it just comes off as as ancillary, just something that like vesticle, like you said, it it doesn't need to be there. It, it has no purpose in the script other than taking up time. Like it, it was almost like we can't release a movie that's under an hour and a half. We need to have these extra few minutes in here. I actually, I think you've hit something nail a nail in the head because like I I've, rarely do you see anything that's not like a Adam Sandler comedy come in at under 90 minutes. So right. like, I definitely think you're onto something there, but there, so the other last argument that I think is the most persuasive is it actually does have something to do with the plot. Does because it? the one like, like Marge is a very good detective. She's got very, a good analytical mind, but because she's never left her small town, she's naive. And the idea that a guy like Mike would just completely bald face lie to her face for sinister motives mm. and her not realize it makes her think that I need to go back and press Jerry Lundergaard because he knows more than he's letting me on. I think she gotcha. knew that already, but this really put that number one with a bullet because that's the next after she takes that call, she yeah. decides to drop in on Jerry again. And that's what leads him to the rabbiting. Okay. So like. I like but that argument is, best for sure. But, but what does that say about it? Cause you've seen this movie several times, right? Uh-huh. Like, and I, like you, I've never understood why fucking Mike <laughs> is in this movie. Uh, is it still a little bit of a flaw or is it something I, maybe that it's you a flaw. appreciate? Yeah. Maybe it's a flaw in my perception of the character of Marge at the beginning of this movie. Cause I assume she was smarter than to just believe Jerry, but the way she behaves, she does believe him, right? She goes in there, he says everything's he's a fine, nice man. and then he leaves. He's, he's, he, run, he runs a he, he runs a, a car dealership. He's got a you can see her like she looks and sees his picture of the wife and the kid. She smiles because mm-hmm. like, she's like that's what she's hoping for her. Like you can kind of see that she is kind of like classifying people into criminal and not criminal. And maybe yeah. this is where she learns a hard story or lesson about, you know, like maybe not all criminals look like the weirdos out of town drifters. And uh, we haven't talked about our experience with Fargo, the television show, um, which actually rounds more into my understanding of Fargo as a movie. Uh, when, when you factor in everything that's going on there, because yes, there is, there is an element of that, like characters being, underestimated or characters uh, giving the benefit of the doubt when they shouldn't things like that, just because of the the setting and the, the Minnesota nice kind of quality you, you expect from them. So yeah, maybe, maybe the mic stuff works better than I first gave it credit for. So the other thing uh, I wanted to talk about um, as far as Jerry Lundergaard, because we talked about how like wound tight he is and how you can see all the emotions roiling out. 
I really like the final scene where they go to the hotel and drag him screaming from that place because that is all of the emotion he's been repressing. Like that's like all of him being at the end of the rope and like breaking down and just completely he's almost feral. Like he's scratching at the walls and like 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 a little kid that is being drug off out of Chuck E. Cheese and he doesn't yeah, want to leave. He's pathetic. It's too. like <laughs> it, it's pathetic and then like and he's in a tight there's something like him regressing like I mm-hmm. used to think that when I was younger, I used to think that scene is like, why is it so important that we get to see him bust? Is it just like closure for the audience? But I think it's more than that. It really, it really lays bare how pathetic the situation is and how, like, like what a mediocre person that all these people <laughs> died for. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's like Marge says, it's not about like a ton of money, right? It's not about a million dollars. It's about 40 grand is what they were initially hired to kidnap her for. You did all this five people dead for 40 grand. It's the same thing with Jerry. It's like, yeah, all of this ruining your life, destroying everything you've, you do have for what, for a a little bit of a slice of something, something more like, why aren't you content? Like Marge is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you got a good life, dude. Like, yeah, your mm-hmm. your father-in-law doesn't respect you, but like, honestly, it seems like your wife does. It seems like your wife uh-huh. loves you a lot. Like she's always like, Oh, like very chipper fixing dinner. You know, your kid's got some, you know, he's got some shitty teenager issues, but like, God damn, he does not deserve you for a father. <laughs> Holy hell. There's a point in this movie where you feel so bad for the son because his mom's been taken. His dad's uh-huh. acting like a weirdo, completely emotionally unavailable, not answering his questions. It doesn't even just think about his kid, right? Like th- th- does, when they oh remind God. him that he even fucking has a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like what's Scotty going to say about this? And he goes, oh, oh I forgot oh, about Scotty. Scotty. Oh, my God. I got to tell. Yeah. Like not even right? factoring into his, but like. I mean, he's yeah, it's, but there's also that thing where like um, Steve Buscemi threatens Scotty and he like gets legitimately upset. So like. That, but that's not saying interesting too. It's like, are you upset because you're scared for your son, or are you upset because he's threatening something that you perceive as yours? I, yeah, he's he's yeah. a real fucking piece of work. Um, to kind of un, unravel there. Uh, you, so something I noticed in this watch that I hadn't noticed before is, I think there are intentional similarities that they build between um, William H Macy and his father-in-law. Oh, yeah. Like his father in law rehearses his, you know, lines before, like, oh, this, like, yeah. he's like, you know, the gun. here's your damn cash. Where's my damn daughter? Kind of like he's like rehearsing that, just like William H. Macy rehearsed the call to him. Um, he's kind of like wishy washy in the same way he is, you know, and, and impetuous because, like, you know, his advisor and his lawyer is like telling him, and he's like, ah, oh, I should do. Uh, you can't do that, and he kind of agrees, but then he decides to go cowboy anyway. There's a lot of mm-hmm. like, and I, I, maybe I need to work on this theory a little bit more, but I felt like there was a lot of intentional similarities beyond just the Fargo ness of it, because it's like, oh, they both say, oh, geez, when the shit, you know, but that's <laughs> oh, everybody, geez. right? Yeah, when he gets shot. I do, I do love when everywhere. he's shot, and the 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 duck the goose down comes flying out of his puffy coat and he just uh-huh. goes oh Jesus he's sinking down dying <laughs> yeah oh God it's so good yeah so many good on uh, Jesus in this because um, I I think that's the thing I walk around away with that like if Jerry tried a little bit harder I think he could have everything he wanted legitimately just legitimately the respect of his father in law legitimately you know like he he could have had it. Had he just, but, but if your theory about him being underwater and fucked anyway, maybe that doesn't work. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the pressures, the outside pressures are on Jerry Lundegaard yeah. in this movie. Um, clearly there's some, but how long have they been going? Is it his own doing? All that stuff is kind of a question mark. Uh, the, the other thing I, you know, I talked about the Fargo, the television series. Now it's enriched my understanding of Fargo, the movie, this, idea at the end when marge is transporting uh i don't know his name in the movie but peter stormare after she shot him and captured him uh and she's talking about you know this forty thousand dollars and how you did all this five people dead for just a little bit of money i just don't understand it that is after seeing fargo the television series so quintessentially fargo and and quintessentially cohen's right like they make stories that 
in the end, you look back on all the stupidity. Like I, I look at burn after reading um, mm-hmm. as like the quintessential example of this where, yeah. it, you know, uh, fuck. What's his name? Uh, shit. Oh, Joe Jane Jameson. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> oh, what is that actor's name? He's so great. Let me look it up. The, the guy from the Geico commercials or whatever it is. State Farm commercial. J.K. It's 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 uh, J.K. Simmons. Simmons. Yeah, uh, where where he's just like, what what did it all mean? Like what what the yeah. hell? It resolved itself. Why do we care? Uh-huh. I I don't get it. I don't understand anything yeah. that just happened. That <laughs> uh-huh. that feels very Fargo. The television series very Fargo. The movie um, and very Cohen. Uh, yeah, I will say that if you're a fan of television and, and, and movies and you, you like this movie and you haven't seen or maybe you're going to watch this for the first time, you get to the end of like, God damn, that's fantastic. I cannot recommend to you Fargo enough, the series, because yeah. Fargo is masterful at feeling like this movie. It's mm-hmm. normal people doing heinous things for shockingly small amounts of money and for s- small stakes and like the... Uh-huh. The the moron bad guys, the smart cops, the moron like there there is a particular kind of rhythm and feel to it, and every season, um, especially the first two, for sure, really really nail this kind of bleak, bleak modern morality tale, um, and it's it's they're they're beautiful too, like the they're well acted, well made. Uh, if, if you like Fargo, you should check out the series, obviously. Hmm. Speaking of the television show, the other thing about this show being a messy kind of, or this movie being a messy kind of real life event is the the buried cash. Yes. Like that's one of the ironies of this movie is there's like close to a million dollars in the frozen tundra of Fargo and it's just waiting for it to thaw and for someone to find it. And they play around with that idea, especially in the first couple seasons of the show of like Mm -hmm. what somebody might find. I don't think they ever do anything with it, but it makes like a really fun MacGuffin. And it's one of the best of kind of like the the vesticle stories that actually are impressive and make you think like like the pointlessness of it. Because like that's the other thing is like Marge thinks is going to go to her grave thinking this was all small potatoes, 40 grand stuff. Mm -hmm. And the true horror of it is probably I don't know, maybe maybe because like the guy's still lost a million dollars from his net worth. And where did it go? And he's dead. And that'll be uncovered. But, like, there is something interesting about all this misery for all this greed, and it's just going to go nowhere. And I love how, over the course of this movie, they constantly reduce the stakes. It's it's a weird, there's a weird curve to this movie that is unlike other movies, where... In other movies, you'd have this this ramp of like stakes going up and up and up until you finally get to the climax and then everything comes back down. In this movie, it's the exact opposite from from one half of the story and the same from the other half. Like. If if you look at at the the money stakes here, you've got a guy who is looking to make a million dollar parking lot deal and he wants to get. His big cut of that. And then you go over to the criminals who are looking to make $40,000 off of this. And that, that is a huge reduction in the stakes, right? Uh-huh, and then, uh-huh. it, yeah, it goes to half a car. And the half the car is the thing that really, like, ends, it ends the stakes. L- ends the murder. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the thing that causes the biggest commotion in this whole movie. And that, that million dollars that is out there is just left out there at the end. And yeah. it's it's really the what what is half of a fucking Cutlass Supreme or whatever whatever kind of shitty car they're they're dealing with here like t- fifteen grand ten grand yeah. at that time yeah the stakes constantly reduce until you're left with nothing and then the real money is out there just in nobody's hands nobody it's funny too because like. I think this movie is well paced and all that, but there's not a lot of tension in it. It does feel like you're just you're just kind of like contentedly watching this interesting story. Like someone's like at a bar telling you like, and then this happened. Then, but like, uh, because like there there could be some tension in in them uh, kidnapping the wife, but they film it like a farce, right? You know, she's sitting there knitting, and you see Steve Steve Simi in a hat, and he puts his things, and he's looking, he can't see, and he's smat, and like. Like, it's just ridiculous, right? Uh-huh. And there's other things where it's like you might, but like the other things that 
feel like should be tension aren't because they happen matter factly, like Steve Buscemi just shooting the old man, yeah. like kind of out of a fit of pique. Um, they don't do a lot of Hitchcock stuff. The one scene they do, and they save it for the very end, is Marge calling in her her uh, burnt sienna, yeah, or whatever the hell it is, and her going and and going like you know, drawing her gun and going around the back and going and like it, and they take a mo- and then you kind of see the scene. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? And then you see the bright red snow. Mm-hmm. And then like it just keeps on building. And then and it's like it's horrifying. Like this this like it is kind of horrifying. This person stuffing a human body into the wood chipper. Oh yeah. But then it also plays as farce because she tries yes. to be a police officer and he doesn't even hear her. <laughs> he's got and a, he turns she's got a point to the star on her hat. Yeah, yeah. he turns around and there's this thing where she's like, I you just stop because <laughs> I'm a cop. And she points at her head and it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. But also they're feeding a human being into a wood chipper and, and using a wood block to match <laughs> it down so you get uh-huh. to get down to the bone. Oh fuck. It's I I don't know what the Coens get up to when they're filming, thinking this shit and then filming it like, you know, because it's just demented. Uh, The other thing about the money is it's just the worst hiding spot for money ever. Like the hiding. You mentioned how it's going to thaw eventually and the money will just be in plain sight, right? In a briefcase. um, Right. With an ice scraper sitting next to it or whatever. But but it's just a bad job of hiding it. Like. There are clear footprints leading out and back from this place that is marked with an ice, an orange ice scraper. It's the only thing that's notable within miles. He looks both directions. There's nothing but fence and snow and road. Uh, yeah. And the snow that he that is covering it is covered in his blood. So like, yeah, it's such an obvious thing. They're like, oh, this was hidden here for a reason and, and what's he got like a three four hour drive like if, if there's any snow at all come in or if there's any wind that blows that snow It'll like cover his that red thing his, his orange marker is going to be gone that's the thing i was True. thinking like oh my god if you're now i know the plan was he was just going to go drop off the cash and you yeah. know take the, the rental buck, car he, you know, piece the fuck out yeah 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 or and then, and the then get the cash um but yeah. but yeah yeah it's not it's not it's not a great not a great hiding spot it's not the one other scene i really like is shep just beating the holy hell out of steve buscemi uh it's so funny to me because it's so sudden and it's just unrelenting mm-hmm. like he just with everything he has beats this man and it's like it's like one of the all-time humiliating beatings too because it's not like a man fighting you he's just like a dad like an angry father coming home to catch his son you know, asleep when he should be mowing the lawn or whatever, and he just like takes his belt off and just starts whipping this shit uh-huh. out of Steve Buscemi. And I always try to figure out like, is he actually whipping him? Uh, like, are there new welts forming, or is this all like makeup? And because it just it looks like of savage beating too. Uh-huh. Uh that's I just pleasant. love I just love the energy. It's just like he's you're he's in the middle of having mediocre sex with uh, a girl he brought home from the beefing boards, and then this storm cloud rolls in mm-hmm. and. This repeatedly strikes him. Uh, and with that observation, I think we're done with Fargo. And we 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 worried. We worried that we we're like, God, is this going to be a thirty minute review? It's one of those like weird. It's kind of a comedy. Like, are we going to have a lot to say? Yeah, uh, I have. I have a lot of wasn't it funny win moments that I could talk about. But you know, we could, if you've uh, seen this, I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm into that. If you want to go into it, but uh, I mean, we got a good fifty minutes out of Mike just by himself. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening to our Fargo podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, if you didn't know, and you're a patron uh, pr- uh, executive producer, uh, we are now allowing people to vote on which prestige film we're going to be doing next. Maybe Pulp, if we ever get to a Pulp dry spot. But mm-hmm. uh, each week on patreon.com slash baldmove, there's an option to vote for three of the different uh, uh, prestige movie slots. We pick a year. We pick three movies that we'd be delighted to cover, and then you decide which one we're going to do. Um, yeah, Jim, what what are the three movies that people will be voting on this week? Uh, got a pretty good slate here. It's all from 1987. It's Wall Street, which is that. Is it Kirk Douglas? Reed Michael is good. Douglas? I don't know yeah. the Douglas is. Heard a lot uh, about this film, haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, good Morning Vietnam, which I think everybody knows Robin Williams' Vietnam War mm-hmm. movie. Uh, Heard a lot mo- about that film? Never seen it. And Moonstruck. She is, I think, Cher and Bruce Willis. 
in a romantic. Oh, Nick Cage, Nick Cage in a romantic. Com dramada dramedy. Yeah, I have not heard as much about this, but like Cher and Nick Cage, it's kind of, yeah, (laughs) interesting. Well, Well, I would not be mad. I haven't seen any of these movies. and I'm kind of equally excited to check them out. So uh, which one have you seen? I've seen Wall Street and Good Morning Vietnam. Oh, you've seen both I've of those. Okay. Not seen Moonstruck. So I'm curious to see what you guys uh, have us watch. Uh, if you are a patron executive producer, check out patreon.com slash bald move and uh, make your voice be heard. And we'll be back next week to talk about one of those three movies. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you later. <laughs>